Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that we could enter into your presence so closely this morning and worship. Thank you for the privilege of song. Thank you for answered prayer. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would help us to think deeply and clearly with your word and about the world into which you have sent us. In Jesus' name, amen. We moved to Prague in September of 1996 so that I could begin to teach business ethics here at Anglo-American University. Before that, we were living in Minsk, Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, where I was a philosophy professor with a group of dissidents who had started a, a pro-democracy university. About a year before our move here, we visited Prague, and I interviewed for this job possibility at Anglo-American University. And I talked with Dr. Richard Jones, who was then the president. And as we were talking about this and that, he asked a question that I immediately recognized as the key question he had for me. And my answer would determine whether or not he offered me the position. He asked, quote, do you think there is such a thing as business ethics? Well, I was really more or less prepared for the, to answer that. And I said, no, there isn't any such thing as business ethics. There are human ethics, which we have to apply in the different areas of life, in business, medicine, healthcare, and he promptly asked me to teach for him. Over the next couple of years, I had a fascinating job of learning about human ethics as applied to business. Now, many of my students were refugees from the Civil War in Yugoslavia, some with nasty war experience, but on both sides, and now sitting at peace in my classroom. Many of my students openly identified themselves as Muslims, though some had a a big Christian background. And my task was to offer them a humane approach to business ethics that correlated, that responded to the massive wounds that they had in their hearts. And at the same time, I was there as a Christian apologist wanting to render Christianity attractive. So I introduced my students to the great thinkers from around the world and across history. And then, naturally, I had the opportunity to weave in some Christian authors into this discussion. And I remembered while I was working on this that when I was a student, I had read an outstanding sermon by John Wesley. It was called On the Use of Money. So the, the responses of the students were really quite striking when I asked them to read the sermon. Like many good Protestant sermons, it had three points. And Wesley himself gave a summary, so we wouldn't miss it. I will read that. One, we ought to gain all we can, all we can gain. But this, it is certain, we ought not to do. We ought not to gain money at the expense of life, nor at the expense of our health. Two, do not throw precious talent into the sea. Three. Having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Now, I asked my students, again, very few few of whom claimed to be Christians, what do they think of this? They said, it's the best thing in business ethics they had ever read. I was shocked. Uh, It was not really what I expected. Uh, Why? Well, 
their God-given talents were recognized, and there was a meaning offered for them. Their work was not just a nasty thing one had to do, nor was it the total meaning of life. There was a real meaning beyond the work, but real. Well, the starving souls of my business students were filled. So with this this mind, let's go back and look at this ancient commandment, you shall not steal. And as we do, I would like us to remember that stealing is all around us, all the time. I'm not only thinking of pickpockets when I walk the streets. I'm not only angry at a taxi driver in Turkey who overcharged me just six years ago, and I remember it like it's yesterday. Uh, Perhaps the worst form of stealing is human trafficking, stealing the soul and body of another person for terrible purposes. I think the most common form of stealing is stealing the ideas from someone else's mind. One of the most ironic descriptions of plagiarism I have ever heard came from a friend and colleague, Thomas Schermacher. This is one of the few times I've ever seen him get really angry. Uh, he bought, he's German, he bought a book about Christian ethics in a German bookstore. He opened the book to begin reading it and discovered that an entire chapter of one of his own books was copied into this book without a footnote. A a prominent author on Christian ethics stealing a chapter from another prominent author on Christian ethics. So be careful about authors on Christian ethics, especially me. (laughs) Um, We need a solution from on high. It's obvious. Of course, not many people will directly steal and say it's good to directly steal. Oh, there'll be someone around who says two cheers for Robin Hood, but not three cheers. Almost no one seriously advocates theft. But what is important and difficult for us is to find the right interpretive framework to understand this commandment, to know what we should be thinking about when we say, you shall not steal. Uh, and I think there are three biblical principles that help us to apply and understand this commandment. Uh, One of them was in the reading that we had from Deuteronomy earlier. Uh, But Each of these tends to help give us some depth to our understanding of the commandment. And I would add that we'll make a mistake if we absolutize or isolate just one of these three. In fact, part of what we see in secular economics today is isolating one of these three principles from the others, not taking all into account. So let's talk about these three principles for a moment. The first is that God created us to work. We see that in the book of Genesis already. We read there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. God's creation purpose was that we be active, not idle. Idleness is not part of God's plan. Now, this does not mean that everyone should always be working for money. Some of the most important work people do is unpaid. Think of being a parent or volunteering for a humanitarian organization. But it means that if a person has abilities, that person should use those abilities. And even if they don't get paid for it. I met once a man who spent a career working as a fireman. Uh, He became a fire captain. And at the end of 20 years, he was allowed to retire with his complete income intact. So he could retire with a full, generous salary. He was independently wealthy at about age 40. Um, He decided to 
volunteer to work for his church. So he was a full-time staff member at their church, but uh, did not need to take a, take a salary from the church. He was using what he'd been given. In this case, he'd been given a, a salary for life. Now, what's this have to do with the Eighth Commandment? Well, what, what we've read in Ephesians is that one of the opposites of stealing is working. We read in Ephesians 4, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. Stealing really is a refusal to work, to work honestly, to do something useful. There's a Jewish proverb, I wish I could quote it correctly, it says something like, if you do not train your son for a profession, you are training him to be a thief. I think that's true. And related to this, we should see that the, there's some emphasis on the Bible that God uses work to create wealth. Remember what we just read in Deuteronomy 8 a few moments ago. Remember, it says, remember your Lord, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Wealth can be produced through human work. And that's the way God has made things. And it happens only with God's blessing. So we should be conscious of that. When we take up our jobs tomorrow morning, uh, we, our work can produce something if God blesses it. We're not on our own in this. And that's the way uh, wealth is created. And wealth, when wealth is created, it brings with it the right to own the wealth that you create. Now, but the human creation of wealth is vastly different from God's creation of wealth. God created the world out of nothing. He created us out of nothing. Uh, we create something out of something God has made. So we're only God's assistants. So we don't exactly own wealth. We should perhaps say we sub-own wealth as we sub-create in God's world. And that's why uh, what we have doesn't really belong to us, even though uh, on paper the law may say it does. Everything we have belongs to God. And therefore, God may tell us what to do with what we have. We read, for example, in Malachi 3, God asks, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. God can legitimately say, Well, I gave you wealth. Uh, use it for yourself and your family, but also use it for others to help other people. So work is the opposite of stealing. It leads to owning property, but owning property that really belongs to God. But there's a second opposite to stealing in the Bible. And that is that God wants us to recognize and protect the rights of others, the property of others. We read in Deuteronomy 22, If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. We are to be sure to take back to other people what belongs to them, because it really does belong to them. Uh, some 30 years ago, Gus and I went camping with our then two small children, our son, new guy at that time, Justin, was helping me set up the tent in a park. And he was surprised. He saw something shiny in the grass. He bent down and picked it up, and there was a man's wedding ring. And he said, oh, how do we get this back to the, whoever lost it? So Justin and I went to the park ranger. The park ranger carefully noted who found it, where, and when, and locked up the ring. 
Well, we got home from vacation, I don't know, a few days, maybe a week later, uh, and there was in the mail a letter to our son Justin from the man who had just lost his wedding ring and a generous financial reward. Justin, our son, he probably hadn't read Deuteronomy yet, but he recognized that um, he, learned, he was reading young, but not that young, maybe. He recognized that when he found something that clearly belonged to someone else, he had a duty to make sure it got back to him. Hmm. And this is the way the Christian approach to private property is different from non, some non-Christian approaches to private property. Our emphasis is we have to make sure the other person gets back what belongs to them. Our emphasis when we talk about private property is not that I get what comes to me, but that someone else gets what comes to them properly. This is our approach to economic justice, making sure everyone else gets what is due to them, and we won't worry about ourselves too much. Uh, And this is what really helps people in need. Uh, If you're wealthy, you probably don't need someone to protect your wealth. But if you're poor, you do need someone to protect protect what little you have. Now, in this regard, it's interesting to note some words that are connected in Hebrew in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for deception is closely related to the word to steal. It's a form of the verb ganab in Hebrew. And this would point out that deceiving another person often has to do with stealing from the other person. Why do you tell someone a lie, uh, probably to steal something from them. Any lack of truth in any business transaction is stealing. And I've begun to think of advertising in this light. Now, not all advertising is deceptive, but some is. And in advertising, someone is promising you something. Buy this product and XYZ will happen. Who knows what the promise is? But there are great promises connected with most advertising. And uh, to be kind, not all the promises are completely wrong. Um, but we need to think that way about ourselves. When we sell something, whether you're selling your old tennis racket or selling your uh, CV to a future employer, you have to be sure that you tell the truth. If not, you're deceiving, you're breaking this commandment, you're stealing. Another way of breaking this commandment is not working for a day's pay. And whether we work for an hour for a certain wage or a, sal- for a certain amount for a salary each month, uh, our employer deserves our work if he or she is paying us. But the other is true too. If you are the employer, you have to make sure you pay your employee for whatever he or she does. That one is specifically mentioned in the Bible, but God is very concerned when employers do not pay their employees properly. So let's move on. There's a third biblical opposite to stealing that I should mention, and that is giving. We should use our wealth generously to help others. Let me read Ephesians 4:28 once again. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. One of the opposites of stealing is sharing with people in need. And we do this when we use our time, our treasure, our talents for other people. In 1 John 3.17, we read, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, 
How can the love of God be in him? Probably most of us are in the group of people who have, have or will have material possessions. We have to think about that. What are we going to do with what we have to help others who do not have? Love requires something. And love of others is the opposite of being greedy. You know, greed is a serious sin in the Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told that greed is idolatry. Uh, now, being wealthy is not the problem. It's being greedy with what we have. Uh, we, we should not waste what we have. We should not throw it away. We should not primarily use it for ourselves. If God has made you wealthy, it's for a purpose, to use your wealth to help others. Don't feel guilty about it. Do something with your wealth if you have wealth. Um, and this would change the way the church functions, make the church into a distinct kind of community. Um, there's something very encouraging that I have learned about in recent months. Of course, you've probably heard there have been some terrible hurricanes that have hit the United States. What is not getting into the international news is the response of the churches that are not too far away. In some cases, the churches are destroyed and all the people in the church are running for their lives because their houses are gone too. But churches that are, say, a couple hours drive away are often responding with great generosity. The people in those churches who are close to the disaster are going to the store, buying food and beverages and other things people might, might need, and simply driving to the destruction areas and giving them to people, often working through the churches there. It's been a tremendous example of people giving spontaneously, using their time, their treasure, to help people in need, and it's largely working through the churches. I'm so delighted to have heard about this. It's, it's just terribly encouraging. We should do likewise. At Mount Sinai, God thundered, you shall not steal. Why? Property and economic life are fragile. It's easily broken. But we have to look at the, to the Bible for real alternatives. I think we've seen three most important ones. God created us to work. He calls us to protect the property of other people, and he calls us to show real love to people in need. In the spring of 1996, we were living in Minsk, Belarus, and I took a train all the way to Yalta in Crimea. I was asked to give a lecture on human rights theory to a group of uh, philosophers and sociologists who were openly asking if Christianity had answers for the questions. Now, this train ride was quite long, about 36 hours, I think. On the train, I shared a cabin with an elderly man who had been a soldier in the Soviet Red Army during World War II. And he was proud of that and wore his war decorations on his jacket. And this was 51 years after the war. Now, as our train chugged south over countless miles of Ukraine, we went through one village after another that was obviously in terrible poverty. Things just didn't work. There were people standing by the train hoping that someone would throw something from the train to help them. And I started to discuss with this elderly gentleman what we saw, what to do about it. And he came out with a very clear answer. He said that what his country needed was a new Stalin-type figure, someone who could give orders, who could make the country work again. 
He said a strong man is needed for a strong economy. Now, I've continued to think about his words as I have observed more extreme poverty as I've traveled in East Asia and Africa and Latin America. Well, I, I obviously enjoy a degree of wealth. I've, as I've thought about his question, I've begun to rephrase it. The question I now wrestle with is, why did the regions of the Protestant Reformation create wealthy economies before other regions? Uh, just last year, I gave a lecture on that topic for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation celebration in Hanoi. It's a tremendous privilege. What I argued in that setting with uh, Vietnamese intellectuals, I argued that the desire to help people learn to read the Bible, which arose during the Reformation, uh, led to the development of modern languages and the desire to teach people how to read. And that's partly how the Reformation developed modern economies. But there is more. Things we've talked about this morning. When we read the when people began to read the Bible in the early 1500s, at the time of Luther and others, they noticed that the Bible talks about work quite a bit. Page, pages here and there. That work is a way of serving God and serving our neighbor. This was the birth of the Protestant work ethic. John Wesley was very, very closely following Martin Luther and everything he says about work and money. So what I would like us to do today is I would like us to leave here being much more confident in the Protestant work ethic that I have just described. We have something of extreme value and something that our world needs, needs desperately. So let me close by repeating those words of John Wesley. One. We ought to gain all that we can gain, but this, it is certain, we ought not to do. We ought not to gain money at the expense of life, nor at the expense of our health. Do not throw precious talent into the sea, having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we confess that you've given to us. You've given to us in creation. Now as we move to the Lord's Supper, we celebrate what you've given us in redemption. Accomplish your will on us now, we pray. Amen. Because we come from a lot of uh, different churches and backgrounds, I'll try to explain the Lord's Supper a little bit so we talk about what we're doing together. I will read a couple texts from Scripture. Uh, I forgot to have them on the overhead. Maybe they can find them yet. The first is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The apostle wrote, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And then 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As Paul said, this is a proclamation. We are proclaiming to each other by visible, symbolic means that Jesus died and rose for our salvation to completely pay for all of our sins. The message proclaimed in the Lord's Supper is the same as the message proclaimed in the Gospel. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder. We're invited to think back what happened in the past. The Lord's Supper is also a participation. The word Paul uses there means is a means of fellowship or a means of interaction with Jesus. Here we encounter Jesus as he comes to to us and lifts us to his presence. It's also thanksgiving. We come not in fear, but in thankfulness for what he has done for us. Now, we should note there was a serious warning in the words I read. Uh, You should only take the Lord's Supper if this honestly expresses what you believe to be true. Take the Lord's Supper with us if you believe the promise that Jesus died and rose for your salvation, and if you want to tell him and tell us that you believe that. Then come and participate. Now, we have uh, grape juice and small cups. I believe there's a wine and a large cup, and there are a couple types of bread, normal bread and bread for people who have allergies. So you can ask for help when you come up. Uh, so over here is the bread for people with allergies. Okay. Uh, when people, we have a team of people for each table who will be serving you, I would like to ask that they uh, repeat the words, what it means, so that we connect word and sacraments that they'd ask our servers to say, uh, this is the blood of Christ for you, or this is the cup in the new covenant, as they feel glad to do. And I would like to ask our music team to go first so that they can be served and participate properly, and then we'll ask everyone else to, to serve. So I'll pray now, and then we'll invite everyone, to the music team and the servers, to come up. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what a, what a privilege you've given us that we can celebrate your goodness to us before you. Thank you for giving your body and your blood on the cross and in this celebration this morning. With thanksgiving, we say amen.